Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Senator Joe Manchin at it again. The lead starts right now. President Biden this afternoon pushing his economic plans with a price tag in the trillions. But will his fellow Democrats get in the way? Then, a massive new vaccine mandate for teachers and staff in California. And the Biden administration wants others to follow their lead. Plus, could Kabul fall? A new intelligence assessment warning Afghanistan's capital could be isolated by the Taliban within just 30 days. We are live on the ground there. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown, in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with our politics lead. A giant step for President Biden as he cheers on $3.5 trillion worth of promises made and promises he hopes to keep. Hours after passing the bipartisan infrastructure deal, the Senate voted very early this morning to move forward on the president's $3.5 trillion budget blueprint. Now, this plan includes a long list of pricey Biden priorities, such as investments to fight against climate change, universal pre-K, creating more affordable housing, and changes to the tax code, just to name a few. The late-night vote was only the first step in a lengthy process, which, as CNN's Phil Maddenly reports, already is turning into a price tag fight within the president's own party. In the past 24 hours, we've seen the Senate advance two key pieces of my economic agenda. President Biden taking a victory lap for the second time, just hours after this moment. That applause from Senate Democrats just minutes before 4 a.m. this morning, marking another win for the White House. This was one of the most significant legislative days we've had in a long time here in the United States Senate. All 50 Senate Democrats sticking together through a 15-hour process of dozens of votes, adopting the blueprint for Biden's $3.5 trillion social safety net expansion, and on top of a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure. Two critical legislative wins in two days. But for Democrats, the real work begins now. It's as if we... uh caught a pass, a nice long pass at midfield, but we still have 50 yards to go before we score a touchdown. Negotiations over the critical details of that $3.5 trillion package launching in earnest in the weeks ahead, with key elements like universal pre-K, home and child care, free community college, and expanded paid leave all expected to be included. But unlike the infrastructure proposal, Republicans are unified in their opposition to the plan. What our colleagues are proposing and planning is absolutely jaw-dropping. And there's no margin for error due to the barest of congressional majorities and already concerns from key moderates about the price tag, with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin saying he has, quote, serious concerns about that $3.5 trillion top-line number, all as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has maintained the bipartisan bill will go nowhere in the House until that second measure is ready to move. Whatever you can achieve in a bipartisan way, Bravo. We salute it. We applaud it. We hope that it will pass soon. But at the same time, we're not going forward with leaving people behind. 
for now, Biden making clear today he fully intends to sign his entire agenda into law. We brought this economy back from a cold start. And there is going to be, uh, there are going to be some ups and downs. But I am committed to making sure that our historic economic recovery reaches everyone. And Pamela, White House officials are keenly aware of the delicate balance they've got for the months ahead as they try and get this across the finish line. In fact, officials say much of the next couple of weeks with lawmakers back home for the summer recess will be spent behind the scenes, quietly trying to identify what potential problems are and then trying to address them. They feel like what they've done up to this point clearly has worked. And as one official said, there's no point in changing what's worked so far, Pamela. All right, Bill Madeley, live for us from the White House. Thanks, Phil. And let's discuss. Dan, I'm going to start with you. Look. Let's put into perspective what we've just seen happen over the last 24 hours. The uh, the infrastructure bill passing, now the budget resolution passing, neither are law yet right now. But does this show that government can still work? It can when it is in the political interest of both sides to make it work. And that's really what we're talking about with this infrastructure bill. It, it is we need to take a step back, as you as you said, and frankly, applaud the notion whether I'm not talking about the substance of this. I'm just talking about the process mm-hmm. of uh, people on both sides of the aisle, particularly the Republican side in this case, because it was a Biden initiative saying, you know what, I'm going to do what's best for my constituents. And let's get real. When you talk about bringing home hundreds of millions of dollars in job producing projects, it's also best for them politically. Uh, So that's why it it seems as though as important as this is, and we need to look at it uh, for what it is, which is a big accomplishment for Joe Biden, but also for these uh, Senate Republicans who prove that they can govern, want to prove they can govern. I'm not so sure that this is going to be replicated anytime Mm -hmm. soon. Yeah, you actually had this quote on that note in this in your Politico piece um, from Matt Bennett with the center-left group Third Way. And he said, hope will spring eternal with the moderates on both sides to try to keep the magic going, but nobody has even the faintest idea if they can produce anything beyond this bill. There are nuts that are too tough to crack. So is this lightning in a bottle? Is he right? I think so. I mean, in the fact that it was Third Way saying that, which is a moderate group which wants bipartisanship Mm -hmm. when they can get it, shows that Uh, even moderates across the party, across the Democratic Party, aren't necessarily holding their breath thinking that they're going to get a big bipartisan deal on something else after this. Could there be maybe a few other deals between Republicans and Democrats along the way? Yes, when it comes to China's competitiveness, uh, potentially on uh, uh, the AUMF, the authorization for the use of military force. But on something big like voting rights, on immigration, no one really sees that ability to work with Republicans and and Republicans to work with Democrats. So I do think that this big win for Biden is going to be just that this one big win. Uh, And he, though, it desperately wanted it. You know, part of why it also worked is because Biden and his White House decided that they were going to do everything that they could Mm -hmm. to try to get to yes with Republicans. And that was something that White House staffers told us, which was that along the way, they couldn't give up. They had to constantly go back to the table to try to find the yes. Well, I think the reason why that's also the case is because they also realize that perhaps there's not going to be an opportunity to do anything more as big or even equally as robust, not just because Republicans have done it and now they just probably don't have the appetite to do it again, but then going into the 22 midterm elections, who knows what the House is going to look like afterward. So they did put 
all their eggs in one basket, as they say, to make sure that this was the thing that everyone focused on, and they focused on it like a laser. And let's be real, there were a lot of people who didn't even think we were going to get this far. And so to your point, I just said on that point. Listen, this is Washington. Republicans and Democrats always find a way to come together and spend money. There was not a lot of drama associated with this. It took a long time. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, we should not lose sight of the fact this is $3.5 trillion. If you don't think this is going to come back to bite Democrats in the midterms, you're kidding yourself. But that's different from the other one. That's reconciliation. But there's going to be a tremendous amount of money on top of the five trillion that Biden and Trump spent together for mm-hmm. COVID rescue. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so much money churning through the system. So I can see why President Biden wanted to check the box. I got my bipartisan mm-hmm. bill done. But if, right. if they think this is going to win over Republican voters later and a lot of people are going to care about the fact that you spent all this money on roads and Internet, I, I think they're kidding themselves because of the culture war that is happening on the right is alive. And well, and a lot of those voters just don't care about the policy. So we're going to get right back into the partisanship probably in September or October. And this just seems like something that was always going to happen. So congratulations on the sausage making and getting, you know, this massive infrastructure bill thing through. But like this isn't even controversial. And, and can I just add one piece of evidence to back up your point on, on the politics of this and where the Republican Party is in particular? Only one Republican who's going to face voters next time voted yes. Mm-hmm. Lisa Murkowski. Mm-hmm. All the others, even though some of them were at the table at the beginning, like Todd Young, for example, backed out. And they backed out because mm-hmm. the former president right. uh, decided that this is something that he was going to make a- as a litmus test. Don't vote for something that is a Joe Biden priority. And that has resonance within the Republican base, which is why they voted no. And the partisanship has already started, right? Mitch McConnell said that he everything they're going to do from here on out is going to be trying to defeat Biden's agenda. Well, they're he said all- that he said that before he voted for the the infrastructure bill, but now he's saying when the president ran for office, he said he was a moderate, so I was looking for some evidence <laughs> of it, and we finally finally found it. I mean, is that snark or a compliment? I think it's snark. But again, but it is hard to But again, I think you were the one who said it. We have to give kudos to both sides for doing this, right? But now moving forward is going to be the big question. The partisanship has also started because there are Republican groups that have already said they're going to spend millions of dollars against Democrats who are about to vote for this big $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Democrats are starting an effort to put money into defending the House majority to say, Everything that's in the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill might not be bipartisan in Washington, but it's bipartisan across the country. And so, well, the bet the Democrats are making, just to pick up on Amanda's point, is that they are going to be arguing that since they're putting money into the pocketbooks of and getting women back into the workforce and elder care and child mm-hmm. care, and that they're going to do paid family leave, and, and potentially also, although this is going to be a really big task to get through, the prescription drug negotiations and price and cuts there on pricing. So they're hoping that those are going to help them survive mm-hmm. a midterm election cycle that is not in their favor at all because of the fact that uh, Republicans are favored and also redistricting and also gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. And they're probably going to run, as you pointed out, on spending on inflation. I mean, yeah, that and is- even what's happening in schools right now. I mean, I've got to say, we can play this up. It's a big historic deal, but it does not speak to the concerns of many Americans right now about the uncertainty with schools, the economy, health care, et cetera. All right. Amanda, Maria, Dana, Laura, thank you all. Thank you.
And coming up, a push to expand vaccinations to more children. But would most parents even get those kids the shot? A revealing new poll up next. Plus, prices are on the rise. We're going to explain what's getting more expensive and when it might stop. In our health lead, this new COVID wave is getting so bad, the Biden administration and public health experts now are urging businesses and local leaders to require vaccinations. Today, Amtrak announced it's mandating the shot for all employees following United Airlines' lead in the travel industry. Now, as CNN's Nick Watt reports, the state of California is doing the same for teachers and school staff. California just became the first state in the nation to mandate all school staff are vaccinated or tested weekly. We think this is the right thing to do, and we think this is a sustainable way to keeping our schools open. So might they one day mandate students are also vaccinated? We'll consider that if necessary, but we believe this is a meaningful first step. California, first state in the nation to lay down such a mandate, takes effect mid-October. The Biden administration now looking into whether it can legally overrule any state that bans mask mandates in schools. If you're talking about the federal government coming in and overruling parents in our communities, you know, that would be something that we would fight back vociferously against. More Floridians are in the hospital with COVID-19 right now than ever before. And a health official tells CNN 200 ventilators have been sent to the state from the federal stockpile. The governor claims ignorance. I would honestly doubt that that's true, but I'll look because we have a lot of stuff that we stockpiled over the last year and a half. I would note that as a policy, we don't uh, send ventilators to states without their interest in receiving the ventilators. In Texas, the governor banned school mask mandates, but two temporary legal rulings just allowed them. Some districts now slapping them in place. The schools are opening here in the south during the screaming level of transmission from Texas all the way to Florida and everything in between. And remember, vaccines are still not authorized for kids under 12. The clock is ticking. As we move to late fall and early winter, you want a vaccine for for young children. I certainly hope we have one in place by then because children need this. One-year-old Carter Buttram caught COVID after attending daycare in Missouri. There's no smaller feeling than watching someone who can't even speak for themselves go through that and you not be able to help. But one in five parents of kids currently eligible say they will definitely not get their kids the shots. More than half think their kids should not be required to get the vaccine. But more than half believe masks in school should be mandatory for the unvaccinated. And some more news from out west, and it's not good news. Oregon just posted its highest ever daily case count and has the most people in the hospital of the entire pandemic. That state has just ordered a statewide indoor mask mandate. All of that, that could have been headlines from last summer. Feels a bit like Groundhog Day. Yeah, Pamela. going backwards. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. Joining me to discuss is Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Great to see you, Dr. Offit. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has reported 
um, a 15% increase in reported cases for children across the country. As students return to school, how bad is this going to get? Right. It's the confluence of several worrisome events. You have a clearly more contagious virus in Delta. You have, for children less than 12 years of age, no ability to get a vaccine. That's a completely unvaccinated group. And for those between 12 and 17 years of age, only about 30 to 35 percent have been vaccinated. So they're an undervaccinated group. You're heading into fall and, and winter when this virus is much more likely to be transmitted because it's transmitted more easily in cooler, less humid climates. And we're not as good in terms of our behavior. I mean, think about where we we were last fall when children were going to school, you know, many schools weren't open. And, and those that were, were very good about masking, social distancing, keeping people apart in the uh, cafeterias and stuff. I'm worried that this confluence of events will lead to outbreaks in schools and the children will suffer our ignorance here. And by ignorance, I mean the fact that we only have 50 percent of the country vaccinated. And there are a number of governors out there who won't even let children mask when for, for those less than 12, that's the only chance they have of avoiding this infection. And earlier today, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis said there has been no change in the proportion of pediatric patients testing positive. But that is false. I mean, if you just look at the data from HHS, pediatric hospitalizations are more than four times higher than they were a month ago. So what do parents need to know about this Delta variant and how it is impacting kids? We keep hearing more kids are ending up in the hospital. It's more transmissible. But what does the science show in terms of how harmful it can be? Well, it's clearly more transmissible. There, there were three studies that were recently reported by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, showing that it appears to be somewhat more virulent, meaning more likely to cause severe disease. I mean, this virus is good at finding those who are susceptible and children are susceptible. I think the good news is, at least for those 12 and over, we have a vaccine. And for those less than 12, we do have masking that can, that can protect them. But I think it's sort of a dangerous moment as we head into fall and winter with a, 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 a susceptible population, all of whom are going to be in one place in school. I just fear that there's going to be outbreaks and quarantines and maybe even, you know, those school superintendents who are going to decide to go back to virtual learning. And so so don't do that. I mean, what we should do now at the beginning is, is mask and, and social distance for those who can't be vaccinated and for those who can be vaccinated, get vaccinated. I'm including teachers. Teachers should, frankly, I think, have a vaccine mandate to go back to school. And that's what you're seeing out of California now. But let's talk about this new poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation about vaccines and kids. A majority of parents, 63 percent, want unvaccinated kids to mask up at school. But when it comes to vaccines, a lot of parents are hesitant. One in five say they will definitely not vaccinate their kids, even though their kids are eligible. 58 percent, the majority say they do not think their child should be required by their school to get it. What is your reaction to these numbers? Well, first of all, for the 12 to 17 year old, we have excellent data that these vaccines are safe and effective. So there's no reason not to vaccinate the 12 to 17 year old. For those who are less than 12 years of age, we haven't seen the data yet. I mean, we will see the data. And, and if, if those data are convincing that, that the vaccines are safe and effective, then there's another reason to give those children vaccines. In terms of, of not wanting mandates, remember, we've had school mandates for vaccines since the 1970s. I mean, all 50 states in this country have school vaccine mandates. Um, many states have pop-offs, meaning philosophical exemptions or religious exemptions, but all states have vaccine mandates. This isn't a new phenomenon. And certainly if you're going to have a mandate for a vaccine, this would be one, right, given how devastating this virus has been, has been and how devastating it is right now for children. 
Right. And of course, anecdotally, I still hear the concern from from some parents that, oh, it's still so new and it's only emergency authorization. And so there is a lot of pressure right now, frankly, on the FDA. The Biden administration is now being criticized for not nominating an FDA administrator yet, as we all wait for them to approve vaccines for younger children. You're on the FDA advisory panel. How much does not having a permanent FDA chief matter in this process? Well, it's more psychological than anything else. I mean, you know, half this country has already been vaccinated with, with, with these, uh, these COVID vaccines. So it's not exactly an experimental drug. I can think of, frankly, no other licensed medical product out there that's been given to so many people and has such a tremendous record of safety and efficacy. So to say, look, I want to wait until it's fully licensed or fully approved till I know that it's safe and effective is a little silly. Um, hopefully that'll all happen by, by mid-September, so we'll have approvals that are in place. In terms of, of vaccines for children, I think it's reasonable, to, meaning those less than 12, I think it's reasonable to wait to see what the data look like. But if the data are convincing, then I think your skepticism should melt away. For those who are still saying, look, I don't want to get the, these vaccines, then their skepticism is sort of morphed into cynicism, which benefits no one. And again, you would normally see, according to the data, side effects, any side effects from a vaccine within two months. This vaccine has now been around for for a long time. All right, Dr. Paul Offit, thank you so much. Thank you. A showdown over masks in the classroom. We're going to talk to the head of the San Antonio School Board up next. Our national lead, the showdown in Texas over masks in schools rages on after Republican Governor Greg Abbott imposed an executive order banning masks in schools. Countless school districts define Governor Abbott's orders, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio among them. And just moments ago, a Dallas County judge also issued a new uh, emergency order mandating masks in certain public spaces, not just schools. CNN's Ed Lavendera joins me now from Dallas. So, Ed, has Governor Abbott responded to these counties defying him? Well, he hasn't responded directly yet, and this has been going on for several days now. But his press secretary did put out a statement yesterday saying that the governor still believes that the time for mask mandates is over, that it is up to the, quote, personal responsibility of Texans uh, to get the virus under control and do what they need to do. The governor goes, went on to say that he is urging uh, all Texans to get vaccinated. And he's also working with the attorney general here in this state, Uh, So clearly, perhaps trying to work up some sort of legal response. But what we've seen here in the last couple of days is essentially an open revolt in the largest cities across the state. Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, county and school board officials there in all those major cities uh, bucking the order that was issued by the governor just a few weeks ago, saying that mask mandates would not be allowed. They've had a couple of legal victories uh, in the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, where Dallas and San Antonio have requested a temporary restraining order uh, against the governor's order so that they could implement mask mandates. Uh, But a hospital official say uh, the time for action is an urgent situation right now as hospitalizations are increasing and the number of ICU beds are dwindling. The rate of acceleration of new cases and the rate of acceleration in the numbers of hospitalizations is as steep as we've ever seen it. And we're worried about what that means. Does that mean that this particular surge is going to go a whole lot higher? Does it mean that it's going to be of longer duration than previous surges? 
Uh, it's just, we know it's problematic. We're not yet sure how to interpret that. And so that's the situation right now in Texas, Pamela. You have legal and political infighting going on at the state level and local officials as hospitals are scrambling to deal with the high number of hospitalized patients facing COVID. And across the state, if you take a closer look at the numbers, there are some parts of the state that are down to uh, in, in hospital region areas where they have single-digit number of ICU beds available. And every hospital official we've spoken to over the last several days, Pamela, is telling us that all of the patients coming in are unvaccinated and much younger than what we've seen throughout most of this pandemic. Pamela? We keep hearing that over and over and over again from hospitals all over the country. Ed Lavendera, thank you so much. And joining me now is Christina Martinez, board president of San Antonio's Independent School District. Hi, nice to see you, Christina. So classes just started in the San Antonio Independent School District. Have you had any issues with children showing up maskless? No, in fact, we've had the opposite. We've had families and educators who are showing up um, compelled to do the right thing. We had our first day of school on Monday and 99% of our educators and students showed up wearing masks. And so we've been working really hard to have strong, compelling messages you know, really knowing what we did last year, our, you know, our students have been in school since September of last year, not at 100 percent. But we know that there are very effective strategies in keeping our students safe. And masking is definitely one of those. So what will you do if a student refuses to wear a mask? I mean, we are not a punitive district, right? We want to work in partnership and in relationship with those families to really help them understand why making the choice to wear the mask is important. Um, We are working every single day with those families. And if a family has a a concern or a health issue, we're going to work with them one-on-one for sure. But today's the first day that the mandate, the city and the county mandate actually went into effect. And so we we will start to see what happens. But at this point, we don't have any plans to punish anybody. So it sounds like you will still allow some students to opt out under certain circumstances, right? Absolutely. I mean, we are, you know, we believe that, that you know, every single person is going to make the right decision um, regarding their health and, and if they have some concerns. Um, but we're going to meet people where they are. And again, we're going to work to really compel them to do the right thing. You know, a lot of times I'll tell you that the students want to do the right thing. They want to show up. They want to keep their teachers safe. They want to keep their friends safe. And so a lot of times we're dealing with adults making decisions for children. And that's a complicated um, situation to be in. But again, we're going to work one-on-one with those families to make sure that we get to a place where everybody feels comfortable. California just announced that all school employees must be vaccinated. Is that something your school district would consider? We haven't talked about what that is just yet or what the legal ramifications of those are, but we are encouraging as many staff members as possible. Last year, we even took a whole day off of school. We canceled school for one day so that we could put staff on school buses and we bus them to the vaccination sites. So we are very serious about making sure our staff have access to vaccines and the majority of them are vaccinated. But no, we have not talked about mandating vaccines just yet. So this mask mandate in San Antonio only lasts one week. Do you plan to extend it? So on Monday, um, our our Bear County officials, our, our city officials, they will be going back into the court and asking for the mandate, the temporary restraining order that we have right now. They'll be asking to make that a permanent restraining order until we can have a hearing. 
Who knows when that hearing will happen, but on Monday, that is what will happen. They will go back into the court and ask to extend so that restraining order permanently. How long do you think it should last? I think it should last until we have our positive our positivity rate locally below 5%, which is what it was back in July. Our positivity rate is about 21% starting off the week. And so back in July, everything was, people were feeling comfortable. People were hopeful that, that the numbers were going down. And so I think that that mandate should be in place um, until our local positivity rate goes down. And do you think that President Biden should step in to prevent Governor Abbott from banning masks in schools? I think that our local government is doing everything that they can right now. Um, you know, that's a complicated situation when you start to talk about the federal and the state level. I think, again, the most compelling thing for me is that our families and our kids know what to do to stay safe, and they will continue to do that regardless of a mandate or not. Our families know how to stay safe, and our educators know how to keep our kids safe. All right. Christina Martinez, thank you for joining the show. Thank you. The Taliban is rapidly gaining, raising fears Afghanistan's capital could collapse soon. We are live in Kabul, up next. Breaking news in our world lead, Afghanistan's capital could be completely cut off and under Taliban control in a matter of weeks, according to a senior official. A stunning defeat after America's longest war that cost more than a trillion dollars and thousands of American lives. The latest assessment has the Taliban controlling most of the country seen here in red. The capital, Kabul, is the gray island right there in the middle. The Taliban claimed nine provincial capitals since Friday, and the U.S. military's withdrawal is now 95 percent complete. Let's go straight to CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. She is on the ground in Kabul. So, Clarissa... Are officials there nervous that the Taliban are knocking on their doors? That's right. And there's a very real fear here on the ground, especially in Kabul, that nothing can be done to sort of turn the tide of this rapidly expanding offensive. We did hear from President Ghani uh, earlier today. He was trying to rally the troops in the northern city of Mazar-e-Sharif, which has been coming under attack from the Taliban. Yesterday, he also took to Twitter and basically urged ordinary citizens to pick up a gun and enlist with their local warlord and take part in sort of popular uprisings, if you will. But clearly, that is not going to be enough to turn the tide here. We see the Taliban ha have spread across provincial capitals. You mentioned nine. We also visited other cities, Kandahar, which is the second largest city in the country. The frontline position that we visited in a wedding hall, that is now completely under the control of the Taliban. The entire city is surrounded. We saw a similar thing in Ghazni City, again, major provincial capital, entire Entirely surrounded by the Taliban and Afghan forces more and more are simply deserting or surrendering when they find themselves coming under Taliban attack because, Pamela, morale here is very low. And President Biden has talked about this in the wake of the Taliban rapidly gaining control. He said the U.S. has poured over a trillion dollars into Afghanistan over two decades and that the U.S. is still supporting them with money and airstrikes. So, why isn't this enough for Afghan forces? 
Listen, when you talk to Afghans and, and even Afghan soldiers, they, they will say this is our responsibility, this is our country, we have to defend it. Um, but at the same time, the reality is the Afghan forces simply are not able to do so. There's a number of reasons for that. There's problems with, you know, morale on the ground. A lot of people feel uh, that they're not getting enough resupplies because there's so many different bases spread out all over the country. There aren't effective means of, of getting them the food, the weapons, the ammunition that they need all the time. Uh, and also they feel that the Taliban in some ways is just a really unusual and difficult enemy to defeat because Taliban fighters are, are not only willing to die, Pamela, they often actually actively want to die because they see martyrdom as being the ultimate achievement a guarantee of their place in paradise, whereas most Afghan soldiers are afraid. They don't want to die. They don't see any glory uh, in dying for their country at this stage. And, and that makes it a very difficult fight for them to win. That really puts it into perspective, Larissa. Senator Bob Menendez, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman, told Axios, quote, I always thought a contingency would have stemmed the tide. The president has to consider whether what's happening is what he envisioned. Is that sentiment felt by Afghans, too? Do they feel, frankly, left behind and without a backup plan? I think there are a lot of people here who feel that this could have been handled differently. They understand that the U.S. had to leave, that this couldn't be a forever war, that there was a sort of plateau in terms of what the U.S. was able to achieve. But they feel that the withdrawal has been chaotic, that it's been hasty. And most crucially, they feel that essentially the U.S. was beguiled by the Taliban, that they didn't understand when they were negotiating with the Taliban that ultimately the Taliban was going to do whatever it wanted to. And now uh, U.S. Representative Zalmay Khalilzad, as he sits down in Doha and tries to get the two sides at the negotiating table, is almost certainly finding that the U.S. doesn't have a huge amount of leverage with the Taliban any longer, beyond airstrikes, beyond the promise uh, of some kind of recognition from the international community if they participate in these peace talks. They don't have that crucial thing that allows them to say, you must stop doing this or else. Right now, Pamela, the Taliban believes that they can win this and they can win this on their own. And so they're not much in the mood uh, for making concessions in order to talk about power sharing. All right, Clarissa Ward in Kabul. Thank you for your excellent reporting, Clarissa. Food, clothes, gas, all getting more pricey. Will it get better soon? That's next. And the money lead, a mixed day of gains and losses on Wall Street after a new report showing consumer prices for just about everything are up 5.4 percent compared to last year. Biden and his team insist the situation is temporary. But how long is this short-term surge? CNN lead business writer Matt Egan is in Manhattan. So, Matt, there are some signs that this price surge may be easing, right? Well, that's right. But Pamela, for now, Americans are still definitely experiencing sticker shock. Just look at some of these price gains. Over the last 12 months, prices for car rentals are up 74%. Hotels, 24%. Fresh fruit, milk, and other items also more expensive. One grocery store executive told me that in his 38 years in the industry, he's never seen price hikes like this. But the good news is that some items have actually gotten less expensive when you look very recently. Look at how prices went down. Between June and July for car rentals, fruit, 
and laundry machines. That's why some economists are hopeful that perhaps inflation is peaking here. That would be welcome news, of course, to millions of Americans, as well as to the White House and the Federal Reserve, which have been insisting that inflation is temporary. But Pamela, make no mistake, inflation might have cooled off a bit in July, but it remains pretty hot. Man, looking at the how much car rentals have jumped up from a year ago, I like to see they're going down a little bit, but it's still over 70%, you said. So what about companies offering like bigger paychecks? Is that helping offset the price surge at all? Well, it's great news. We are seeing some companies pay workers more. McDonald's, CVS, Chipotle, Bank of America, they've all announced pay hikes recently. The problem is that those fatter paychecks, they're not going as far because of rising prices. In fact, a Harvard analysis found that compensation, when you adjust for inflation, is actually lower today than it was at the end of 2019. So, Pamela, that means that workers need those pay hikes just to keep up with inflation. And you also looked into where people are spending money and found a noticeable change in the restaurant industry. What happened? Well, that's right. We've seen restaurant reservations on open table. They fell last week in high COVID states to about 20 percent below 2019 levels. That's a big shift because just in early July, those numbers were trending higher in those high risk states, which include Alabama, Louisiana and Mississippi. Now, economists are telling me that is a yellow flag for the recovery because it shows that some consumers are understandably shying away from going out to eat because of COVID. I think, Pamela, at the end of the day, this is more evidence that 18 months after the pandemic, COVID is still in charge of this economy, especially in states with low vaccination rates. All right. That is the bottom line. Matt Egan, thank you very much. And up next, Double Jeopardy, the game show finally has a new host or two. That's next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.